0: everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast with your host, as ever, myself, Alex Connor. And today I'm back with another talented guest, one from the strength realms, Mr. Bryce Lewis. Thank you for joining me today. And uh, how are you doing at your neck of the woods?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm joining from Fort Collins, Colorado, nearly on the other side of the planet.
0: There we go. And how good is technology that we can be that far away, but at the same time in conversation. It's wonderful. Beautiful. Well, thanks again for joining me, Bryce. Now for, for people who might not be aware, I know that, you know, quite a few of the viewers and the listeners, they're going to be, you know, they'll hear the name and they go, great. know." but could you give us a bit of a synopsis of who you are, what you do, and more importantly, why you do it?
1: Yeah. Um, I am a strength coach uh, and a powerlifter. Um, Powerlifting is the squat, the bench, and the deadlift. It's not exactly an Olympic sport, but it's similar to weightlifting, which you probably saw just a month ago uh, on your TV. And um, I work for a company that I started called The Strength Athlete that I started back in 2013. And uh, since then, myself and a few other dedicated coaches have been helping Uh, athletes around the world get better at powerlifting. So we create their training for them and uh, they go in the gym and do it. They take video Uh, along the way. We talk about technique, mindset, sports psychology, and uh, ways to get better and better. And uh, as an offshoot of that, I'm very passionate about anything associated with strength training, um, exercise science, sports psychology. um, And, you know, we're deeply involved in the sport at a local, national, international level.
0: Yeah awesome I appreciate that and there's a few things obviously that I want to unpack and a few things we talked about before we turned on the old mics one of them being sports psychology before we kind of delve into a few of those avenues I'd love to kind of take it back to one of the starting points and explore whether there was a a moment in time or whether it was an event or a person that inspired you down this journey of which you're on now, which, you know, has provided some fruitful endeavors and a lot of, you know, meaningful relationships and experiences. Was there a moment or a time that really presented the opportunity to get into this? Or is it something you fell into? Could you talk us through that a little bit, Bryce?
1: Yeah. um, I played volleyball in high school and college, Uh, indoor six-person volleyball, wonderful sport, and started the process of trying to get stronger for volleyball through that and um then discovered bodybuilding then discovered powerlifting have really enjoyed powerlifting um for a little while after that and found that I was pretty good at it um had a following it was kind of at a turning point in my life where I was either going to go back to school um to pursue neuroscience and and uh follow that passion or try being a powerlifting coach and um I know you've had Eric Helms on the podcast before. He was someone who, uh, even to this day, is is a mentor of mine. But at the time, I kind of asked him, like, hey, can I work for you? Do you think I could, you know, be a fifth coach for 3DMJ? And um, kind of reassured me that I would be okay if I tried to do this for myself. And uh, eight years later, I think he's right. And, uh, you know, we're doing okay and are still able to help people. So um, that was definitely one turning point on the sports psychology side. I know you mentioned, um, that a teeny bit, uh, I had kind of a, a little bit of burnout maybe four years ago and, and, um, some problems with like not gaining strength, but expressing that strength on the platform, um, with, you know, self doubt and, you know, issues with confidence and things. And, and really through exploring my own problems, I ended up kind of developing the
0: resources to be able to help other people as well. Yeah. Yeah. Let's unpack that. It as you mentioned it then, and it's good to talk about, you know, how you got into the sport and where it came from, but in terms of the sports psychology side, when you say you had trouble expressing the strength on the platform, and then we obviously talk about the mental aspect of that, what were some of the things that prevented you from doing that again, this is kind of the interlink between the the psychological, or the mental, if you like, and how it correlates to the physical, because I don't know, but I'm going to assume and guess that perhaps the physiological was there, but because of the psychological, it might've prevented that. Could you speak to that a little bit for us, Brian?
1: Absolutely. And I I think that's the best way to describe like what sports psychology is at its best. It's uh, aligning your physical ability with your mental ability, you know, like every ounce of strength that your physical body can put out, the sports psychology is the stuff behind that that allows you to get that out of you. Um, So, you know, I I was just kind of comparing myself too much with other people and worried about um, the past on the one side and the future on the other side. And, you know, not really being here in the moment, but thinking too much about both sides of that. And um, that's a a tough place to be. And it's a lot to think about while you also have 700 pounds on your back, um, you, you know, you can understand why performance kind of drops when you're not able to really focus on strength output. You're just kind of, your mind is elsewhere. And, um, that was really the thing that kind of led me to like, well, well dang, I got to figure this out and see if I can find a way to improve.
0: Mm, yeah. Without, without a doubt. And it's all of those little 1% on, you know, sports psychology. I remember when I was studying probably now, what is it? 10 about a decade ago shit I'm getting old uh, <laughs> but you know that was like a one of a it was a newer concept you know it, it peep, things seem to come in and um, almost in fashions right it was like oh nutrition's now a thing wow we, we didn't realize how important that was and I, I I believe and I could be wrong but I was kind of on that cusp where it was like oh sports psychology is a thing and we've got sports psychologists now and it is incredible because we see a lot of that now in you know mental health and it is a thing and then sometimes it gets a bit misconstrued how are or what are some of the strategies that you implement now for yourself uh, within that realm to you know, alleviate any you know, external stresses that might be taking away from performance? Because obviously, we always have them. It's not realistic to say, oh, we just flick a button and turn them off. And perhaps what are some of those conversations and strategies that you implement with your clients now who are you know on the same vein and perhaps struggling in that realm? and obviously as i call them being an everyday superhero you know living with the stresses of you know having a job having a family perhaps you know injuries will we'll probably get into that that's a topic on itself but perhaps talking a little bit about that would be valuable
1: yeah um i think taking some of this stuff that can be a little immaterial and just kind of in your head and getting it out of your head a little bit so this kind of helps you identify what's going on um, it's not as clear as saying, "Oh, well, I'm having problems with performance because I'm focusing too much on the past and the future." Like, all you experience sometimes is just the problem, not really like what kind of problem it is. Um, so, journaling can be really usefulness. Um, talking to someone, writing a little bit, um, just paying attention to your experience, seeing if you can identify any patterns. Like, oh, every time the weight gets above 90% then I start kind of feeling hesitant and fear and stuff. So when you can start identifying some patterns, that really helps you try to find some solutions. Um, And I think on the, on the solutions side, um, we can focus on some various goals on process oriented goals uh, on being grateful and kind of racking up the wins as athletes even as people go into the gym, it's so easy to focus on the negatives, you know, what I didn't do well, my lack of progress rather than what is going well, what is going right. Um, So stopping and kind of recognizing the things that are going well can help tremendously.
0: Mm. And that's a critical point there as well. You know, whether we want to call that positive psychology or we want to, you know, boil it down to optimism. But it is, it's really easy to, and we all, I use a basic example, right? We've all been there. We're driving to work or somewhere and we go, oh, got a red light and then something doesn't go right in the car or, you know, it's, you, you get, you know, you know, a traffic jam and you start racking these, you know, negatives up and you think, oh, it's going to be one of those days. And you've told yourself it's going to be one of those days. And it, man, imagine if you're on the way to the platform or a competition or, you know, a speaking event, and if that's your mindset and it's, well, how do we kind of reverse that? Or how do we put a gap or a break? in that section to go right how can we then change that around and understand perhaps it's not you know happening to us necessarily but it's just happening in general and then kind of make that separation going forward and then focus on i think this is why daily gratitude is so powerful and mm-hmm. i know um a lot of people turn their nose up at it oh, i didn't really believe in the power of it in the early days and it's not magic and i'm not sort of sitting here saying it is but when i think the power comes in the byproduct right it's uh when we focus on the positives the brain is now programmed or over time to look more for you know not happy clappy but what are the what are the great wins like you said on the platform well what went well yeah okay let's address where we can improve but that language is different it's not we did bad and this is where we failed. it's no no, no this is where perhaps we can can improve i don't know if you want to add on to that a little bit with your own personal experience but
1: Yeah. Um, the, the neuroscience behind that is, is like a literal rewiring of the brain, you know, and an easy way to imagine that is, um, there's some main road to get from point A to point B and, uh, it's well-traveled, you know, it's, it's trodden, you know, it's, it's wide, uh, it's an easy road to get through and and that's the default way. And so if, if your default way is negative, then that's, that's the way you always take. Mm. And, uh, it takes a lot of work to kind of hack your way through the bushes to get to some new place. But over time, if you kind of keep traversing that, then you widen that road and and that becomes the default as the old one kind of grows over. So that analogy can kind of help explain why, um, this gratitude stuff that you were talking about, like is good, isn't magic and needs practice and time because we're just dealing with, um,
0: neural circuitry that, that takes time to rewire. Mm, That's a good, it's a good visual example, Bryce. And I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I think, an example I often use with clients as well to add on to that is you purchase a car, you see that car everywhere. You go, everyone's got that car, or I now notice it. You didn't notice that car before because now you're programmed to notice that car because it's your car. It's part of your somewhat identity, right? And everyone goes, Oh, yeah, that's right. Everyone's got the car, or I see it all the time. I never saw it. It was like, Well, it was always there. I think there's that mm-hmm. famous video of like, the monkey uh who like the guy in the gorilla suit who comes through the basketball team who's dribbling and then they ask you well, yeah. Yeah, did you see the monkey and you're like no and then because you they said count the basketball passes and you watch it back and you're like there was no monkey and then you <laughs> it's like it's classic but it's so true because we yeah. focus or it's like where attention goes energy flows or vice versa like i might have butchered that but there's <laughs> that old maxim
1: that um that video blew my mind when i first saw that one uh Maybe high school or something like that. I was just uh, in disbelief at how uh, I I didn't see it. You know, I didn't see the the guy in the
0: monkey suit. (laughs) I think we all go, no, 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 hang on. That's a separate video. That didn't actually happen, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Bryce, I want to unpack some more nuanced topics, one of them uh, being strength development. And this is very or it can be very complex. So what I would like to do, and if you've got any recommendations on this, please um, take the lead. But if we could break it down into, say, for example, a beginner, an intermediate, and advanced, in terms of you know, a lot of people want to create rapid strength, or they want to you know be able to create the ability to maximize their potential, whether that is you know specifically within powerlifting to you know find that elite sweet spot, shall we call it, or whether it's even you know to facilitate. Size, You know, there's a relationship between strength and hypertrophy. Um, and we need to acknowledge that. But what often we find is that, as we spoke about before we got on this um, call, uh, or should I say podcast specifically, is that a lot of uh, younger athletes, and this can even happen, I guess, more advanced, is we always want to be training so close to a failure. Uh, which is the irony where oftentimes when we're looking at skill development, strength over time, it's a little bit more nuanced. It doesn't have to be rocket science, but there needs to be some sort of pragmatic approach. I'd love for you to share perhaps some real life examples um, of what you've done with your athletes, even yourself. And perhaps for the listeners, how they can approach um, a strength development over time in a phasic way, for example, okay, I'm, I'm a beginner, I'm an intermediate and advanced, and what are some of the landmarks of those um, areas so people can kind of identify where they are on that, uh, and, and again, where they could perhaps progress. And I know that's a big question. So feel free to simplify it as much as possible. Um, and whatever you feel is the best way to explain this.
1: Got it. Um, let's break that up into a few different pieces and tackle them one by one. So, Mm -hmm. um, strength isn't like a general thing. Um, strength is specific to, uh, an exercise. It's specific, uh, oftentimes to like a loading strategy, whether you're doing like a free weight or something like that one could be very strong at uh, pull-ups and really bad at deadlifting, for instance, uh, having to do with how much you practice anything. So strength doesn't really function independently of uh, your practice. So general principle of specificity, if you wanna get better at something, you do it more often. Um, So rather than talking about strength, like really when people say that they, they basically mean like you can move heavy stuff in a few different ways. You can do some kind of a squat pattern. You can press something away from you like a bench press, uh, and you can pull something off the floor. Sometimes we include like an overhead press in that. And now we're talking strongman uh, as well. Or sometimes we talk about strength with a clean and jerk and a snatch for Olympic weightlifting. Um, but you know, we'll stay with like a, you know, a squat pattern, a press, uh, a pull and then an overhead press. And that's, uh, you know, fairly basic that, you know, when people talk about strength, that's mostly what we're after. So um, principle number one, if we wanna get better at those, we do them more often in some way or do things like them more often. You said there was this link between uh, muscle building or hypertrophy and strength. There absolutely is. Athletes who tend to be more muscular also tend to have a larger capacity for strength. Although this doesn't play out, you know, when we're talking about high level bodybuilders, um, since they don't train for strength, they can have massive muscles, but aren't able to move the same weight that someone in some cases, half their weight is able to move, you know? So, um, how you train, um, should reflect like what your goals are. And most times people don't have extreme goals. They want to be a little strong, want to be a little muscular, want to be a little lean. Um, and just kind of have little pieces of that. So how do we train? We've got this first idea that we've got to do some amount of these large compound lifts um, fairly often. Well, how often? Uh, Less often at the start, more often as you get more advanced. At the start, you could probably get away with doing some type of squat bench and deadlift related thing twice a week would be totally fine. And uh, in rep ranges, let's say eight and below, you know, if we're trying to get better at doing triples, doubles and singles, we want to be training in somewhat proximity to that. As we get higher above eight reps, we're really not training the same energy systems and uh, it's uh, the transferability um, from those types of things to powerlifting movements or overhead press starts to kind of wane a little bit. your smaller muscle groups kind of tend to give out more before, you know, we're really working the things that we're trying to work. So, um, that's basics, you know, after you have some amount of something that looks like a squat, a bench, a deadlift and overhead press, you can supplement that with other movements to, uh, to work on the rest of your body, your lats, um, probably more work for your pecs, more work for your hamstrings, your glutes, your calves, so on. Um, so that we're really covering most of the body most powerlifters should probably train kind of like bodybuilders, but just with a little bit of focus on strength. Um, it used to be the case that powerlifters training, uh, diverged more and it was just more heavy lifts and, you know, we don't ever do accessories because why would we do that? Um, but now I think the times are changing a little bit and, and things seem to be making more sense and aligning more with what the research says on, on exercise science. So, um, we can talk about progression, and that might give us a little bit of an inkling as to when someone might be an intermediate lifter and when someone might be an advanced lifter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think be- beginner lifters are capable of making progress very quickly. Um, you're getting better almost on a, on a weekly basis, if not even sooner sometimes. Um, you can add weight very readily. As you get to be an intermediate lifter, you probably take somewhere around eight to twelve weeks in order to see some progress. So you can't just put you know weight on the bar every week and expect to get stronger. So we have to be smarter with the the weight that's going on, how heavy you're training, and I'll get back to that piece about training to failure in in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know you'll have some level of periodization, so structuring of training over time to lead you into some type of training test every, let's say eight to 12 weeks, something like that. And then you get to a point where uh, progress is much harder to come by and you have to work for longer periods of time in order to make progress. That could mean that you're now making progress every 10 months to a year or something like that. You're able to really, really kind of dig deep and put it out there and, and, you know, expressing progress at this point, hopefully, you know, you're competing if that's your jam um, or, you're know, you just a a highly experienced lifter in the gym who really enjoys what they're doing this whole time. Um, there's not only this strength development piece, you're also getting better at lifting. So your technique is getting better and more refined and uh, there's more efficiency. There's less, um, uh, loss of force output. You're, um, you're refining your movement pattern. And as far as how hard to train, and I think this is a, a big thing that especially newer people misunderstand is that, um, You don't need to train as close to failure as you probably think you do. Um, Most experienced powerlifters really only go to very, very high um, intensity. And we're talking like one rep left in the tank or less sometimes. Let's say uh, every four weeks or something like that, like one time in four weeks. Now, we do want to train heavy. You know, as I talked about, there's that specificity piece. If we want to get better at doing triples, doubles, and singles, at heavy weight, we've got to be doing that um, fairly often. There's a trade-off, though, in that if we end up going to, you know, one rep or less in the tank on a set, I'm going to just rephrase that with RPE, which is rate of perceived exertion. It's a common scale. We talk about difficulty, but it's basically like RPE 9 is one rep left in the tank. RPE 8 is two reps left in the tank. Now we have a common language. Um, yeah, we just need to make sure that we're training a little bit further away from failure because if you go closer to failure, we have technique breakdown. So we're not practicing good technique. Uh, it takes you longer to recover between training sessions. So you get less quality of work and less overall amount of training volume over time. So easy example, you um, you go to failure on a, a set of three and you you do a max triple or something like that and you really aren't able to put in quality work for another three or four days while you're kind of recovering and returning to baseline after such a heavy exposure well that's time that you could have been spending doing added work you know if you hadn't gone that close to failure hadn't flown that close to the sun so to speak so um if we stay a little bit further from failure training is more sustainable and we're able to sustain more work over time which means more progress over time as well
0: No that makes sense. Uh, continue, sorry.
1: Um yeah, the the piece about kind of what my athletes have gone through on this, like my favorite way to coach athletes is the people who come expecting, you know, 5 6 days of training, expecting to be in the gym all the time and I surprise them by saying you you're, you're going to be in the gym 4 days a week and you're doing 40% less work than you have been doing and we end up making more progress as a result. And mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a, a beautiful thing. They're telling me, uh, I feel so fresh all the time. I'm not hurting going up and down stairs. my maxes are going up and, you know, calling me wizard and stuff. And all I'm doing is just, you
0: know, dosing their training volume appropriately. Yeah. I mean, you, you've made some great points there, Bryce. And I appreciate the explanations, the nuances, the definitions as well. And that is the irony, isn't it? A lot of the time, um, you know, <laughs> More is more, but it can be less, more, but it's all contextual because a lot of the time, like you said, when you you take athletes on board, usually by going through the basics and setting, again, I think we'll diverge now into skill, specifically technique, skill acquisition uh and and again dosage in the training right often people are doing too much but when, when we say too much it's it's not either specific or it's not potent enough and uh, there's a lot of say you know the the quote-unquote garbage volume we could say and just again by having a focus by having a refined pragmatic you know approach uh, these athletes can often like you said they're surprised they're like hang on bryce you know how i feel better you know i'm feeling fresh and my lifts are going up and and again it's sort of managing these variables um let's let's dive into that then so we talk about skill acquisition i think an interesting perspective is actually coaching people online now because a lot of a lot of the time you know and i imagine a lot of your clients are in different countries around the world we have the luxury like we do now we talked about technology at the start you know I guess, first of all, uh, when you look at technique and some of the coaching cues for these big lifts, maybe using real life examples, how are you sort of putting that across? You know, what are the main elements when we look at, say, specifically the squat, the bench, the deadlift? I I think just as a side note, because the bench press is very unique, I find. and, And correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, we look at, say, the relationship between say cues and coaching cues of like the squat and the deadlift. And there's, there's things that are similar, right. And we look at, say, keeping a neutral spine, you know, keeping the rib cage stacked, all of this sort of stuff. But then we go to the bench press. And oftentimes when I coach my clients, although I'm not a specific powerlifting coach, I have a passion for those lifts and I know it facilitates a lot of hypertrophy in the early days. So where possible, you know, without putting them on a pedestal, it's like, can we do this lift? Can we proficient? Is the athlete enjoying it? Yes. Cool. And then we go to the bench press and we take elements of say, you know, the powerlifting cues, if you will. And people go, wow, this is, I've never ever done a bench press because most people, you know, they bench press like the bodybuilders, right? Everything's flat and they're not using leg drive. And then I'm like, you know, Hey, you know, you can use your legs and it's, it's amazing. So maybe talking us through, you know, how you coach the elements of those lifts or picking out the key points uh, for us and how you do that, you know, through an online medium effectively for your athletes and clients, please. Absolutely. Um, Well, I mean,
1: one thing is I try to give the lifters that I work with some standards about how and where to take videos from, like what angles will help me the most, um, front angle doesn't do a whole lot for me i like kind of a, a 45 degree front on angle and a side angle too it gives me some useful information about um, body mechanics but if there's ever something i'm looking for i can i can ask but those two angles give me the most useful data um filming or lifts isn't just for vanity and posting on instagram it's also so you can see how you move through space so don't be you know worried about pulling out a camera when you're at the gym it gives you some useful information. When it comes to coaching these, um, I start from a place of individualization. It can be so easy to take a look at someone who is built immaculately for one specific lift and to say that you need your lift to look like that or you're not doing it correctly. Um, We are all built different, not not only on the outside, but also on the inside, different hip shape, for instance, different femur insertion. So, you know, like what is the angle of the head coming off the femur? And these can influence comfort, stance width, toe angle, you know, whether or not you should wear Um, Olympic weightlifting shoes or flat shoes, you know, just a dramatic number of things. So I try not to assume that I know what the lifter should be doing better than they know their own body. And at the same time, they're trusting me because I'm the expert here to give them some, you know, advice or something like that. So I start with questions a lot of times, you know, when you squat, um, what do you feel? And hopefully I can get across at uh, some, some clues as to what they're experiencing. Uh, Oh, you know, I, I feel, uh, my glutes a lot and, you know, I look at their video a lot and see that they're fairly leaned over and now I can start giving them a few kind of cues or they're telling me some problems. Uh, Hey, when the weight gets heavy, I really feel like my chest is kind of dipping forward and I'm losing tension. I kind of have to fight through it. So it's very kind of problem solution oriented. Um, but I think that the pure fact of the matter is that almost everyone gets better through practice. Um, whether or not it's coach director or not, you know, even if you're just going to do the lift, you tend to get more efficient over time. So that is something that's hard to speed up, although we can certainly give some cues that may help along the way. Um, so individualization, uh, asking the lifter and then practice over time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really critical point you made um, in that first segment where you said, it, you know, it's individual to the lifter and talking about inside and outside the anatomy. I think a lot of the time again you know athletes who might be watching other athletes who perform very well or they'll pick someone um say like big ray williams right and it that's it a very unique uh in my opinion the squat stands very strange um when people go oh that's how i have to squat because that's how he squats and he squats a lot and i'm like ah, oh, yeah but that's really going to get you in trouble or uh, i had a young gentleman the other day tell me he was getting coached by um Eddie Hall. And I was like, you get coached by Eddie Hall. And he goes, well, no, I watch his YouTube videos. I'm like, okay, man, I'm like, there's a difference here. Because <laughs> he's going for this, he's, you know, deadlift. And oh, man, you know, he's a teenager. And I'm like, look, you know, I get it. But, uh, let, can, you know, how can I put this across in a way where you're going to listen? You know, um, and, and, and maybe, and hey, look, it's not always about following. And these people, you know, they're elite and there's a lot of other things that they're doing that maybe, you know, we're going to contribute to that. Um, so I think that's a really critical point for the listeners to take away that, hey, it doesn't always have to be, you know, or look a certain way or fit the mold. And as you said, something that's been really valuable for me as a coach is understanding that element where I go, oh, wow, this person's got really long femurs to tibias. And again, it's not going to be for everybody squatting. And sometimes if that's not the goal, it's better to you know, choose a, vari- a different variation. But if this person's passionate about it and you know, we can develop that skill over time, it's like, oh, the cue is different. Maybe it's not always about breaking out the hips first. Maybe it's knees and then hips for this person because that's what it takes. But that goes against like what we're taught in the mainstream. And I think people get confused, especially coaches, or it's easy for people to point the fingers online and be like, oh, why is this person doing that? It's like, well, hey, they, like, that might work better for them. Or hey, maybe that's the cue they've found to facilitate the movement better, which is interesting um, in those lifts. What would you say, Bryce, are the biggest or the most common mistakes that people make when they're squat benching and deading? If you just want to pick a handful of the main ones, that people at home or people listening can perhaps, you know, like you said, get the video out. It's a great coaching cue and look and perhaps implement as um, as a general rule of thumb to these lifts uh, or even cues that they can look for to help them uh, create better relationships with these lifts or things that they can individually work on. I know that's quite nuanced for people, but again, picking things that are what you often find uh, are points of improvement. For example, um, I'll just add on to that to give it some context. One of the things I learned uh, from some, you know, uh, amazingly talented powerlifting coaches is creating a almost a ritual. So for example, when we you know approach the bar and it doesn't have to be, I'm not a big fan of getting aggressive. I don't like that at all. I think the best lifters are very stoic in nature, you know, finding that balance, but whatever works for you. But you know, sort of having that rhythm and routine, and then it's like every time it's the same. I remember when I first got taught that, I was like, What? I mean, I'm a perfectionist, but that's a little anal, even for me. But it was the principle behind it. It was if you create the anchor and you create, and again, this is psychology, right? Every time it's going to be the same. And then when you actually do, like you said, have some serious weight on your back or on the floor, it's, oh, I kind of subconsciously know how this is going to go. I'm not overthinking the simplicity of it. So um, I hope that made sense. (laughs) But perhaps sharing some thoughts on that. Yeah, it did. That's uh,
1: extremely fundamental. And I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I feel sometimes that I'm like in my own echo chamber and that I only ever deal with intermediate and advanced powerlifters who uh, are interested in getting better and probably have spent quite a lot of time on their technique already. So I got to go walk around a commercial gym a little while and just watch people lift, but um, (laughs) um, it'd be fun. One thing uh, I think most people can improve on is just creating um, tension. So, In the squat, they kind of rest their bar somewhere on the back and their hands are just kind of, you know, at their sides and just kind of holding onto the barbell. Um, When people deadlift, they just kind of yank the bar at the start and then get thrown forward a little bit and then spend the rest of the rep just trying to regain um, tightness. And same thing on the bench press, bouncing the bar off their chest. When we create tension and tightness, what we're really doing is making the movement a little bit more predictable. So it goes in line with that ritual piece that you were talking about. Um, Wedging the bar a little bit further down your back, bring your hands in a little bit so that there's more mechanical tension. Your lats are a little bit tighter. Your upper back is a little bit tighter. There's even some tension in your biceps, depending on how close you bring your hands in. Talking about breathing and bracing and um, same thing on the deadlift you know, making sure that we remove slack from the bar and just having your arms long, taking that breath and dropping your hips only as much as you need to get in that optimal starting position. These pieces just boil down to consistency, but it has to do with uh, creating tension and removing that slack from the system. Mm.
0: Now that's a, That's a really valid point. I'd actually like to just unpack bracing a little bit more. Could you define that for the listeners who might be unaware or how would you explain that to an athlete perhaps who's not able to create tension or who's not able to brace correctly, maybe some of the muscles that are responsible and talking us through how you would create that uh, in a mechanistic standpoint. Because I do believe that and you might notice this for me, I, I get a variety of athletes and like you said, walking around the commercial gym, you know, there's a lot of people you can help, uh, even if they don't want to be powerlifters. It's just, I think from a safety aspect for me is, is what concerns me, uh, as a coach, uh, I will feel obligated if something's dangerous, um, to, to sort of, you know, intervene and say, Hey, look with, with the greatest respect, I don't want you to, uh, pull your back out uh, at 17. <laughs> this is not the way to do it but also just giving people even just within a minute hey look try this and it's already going to be better and i find people don't understand the role of the core muscles uh the creating stability creating strength uh, especially isometric strength within those realms and you know we see a lot of people doing leg raises and crunches and not that there's anything inherently wrong with that but it's not really the same mechanism, especially if we want to create tension through these lifts. So I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit, Bryce, uh, and again, some some coaching cues and explaining the fundamentals and why that's so important.
1: Absolutely. Um, so we'll we'll break this down into.
0: just a quick one guys before we carry on with the podcast for any of you who are interested in taking your health and physique to the next level and you want to remove the guesswork you're not quite getting the progress that you want you're not seeing what you want to see in the mirror and you're not feeling like you're really moving in the right direction then click the link in the bio below the apply button where you can contact me we can organize a free consultation no obligation and discover whether it's a good fit as coach and client.
1: All right, back to it. We'll break this down into two movements, um, the squat and the deadlift on the one hand where we have um, spinally loaded pressure and then the bench press bracing is kind of different. Still very important, but but we'll talk about it. Um, you mentioned kind of the fact that like people do all these leg raises and maybe they have very strong abs. You can go do a rope crunch and throw a bunch of weight on it or something like that and yet not be able to brace. Um, there's different muscles at play. Um, when we talk about bracing, we're basically talking about creating intra-abdominal pressure. So um, stabilizing the core so that it bends less under heavy load. Um, similar for the deadlift, similar for the squat, same exact thing. We want to try to reduce the body's tendency to bend when the weight is kind of out away from center of gravity. It's, it's one less moving piece. Um, and look, the spine is stable. I, I don't want anyone to get the impression that, you know, they're at risk of injury for allowing even the smallest bit of spinal flexion. You know, like we're meant to move in, in many different ways. There are certainly signs of excess, um, we could identify too much spinal rounding or spinal rounding in the wrong places. We don't want to see lower back rounding, generally speaking. Um, anyway, what is intra-abdominal pressure? Well, you know, if you know you're going to get punched in the stomach uh, and you and you tighten up that is intra-abdominal pressure. Um, and we can simulate that when you have a belt on, you get to push out against this object around you and just kind of take in a breath and fill it out down in your diaphragm. Um, and that can help you stabilize your spine. Um, Now you don't have to take in 100% of the air you can breathe, but somewhere around 70 to 80% taking a deep breath. Instead of holding it in your mouth, you bring it down in your um, diaphragm and push it out against the belt. Um, Now people talk about kind of pushing out in 360 degrees. Now it doesn't really happen. We don't have a stomach on our back. Um, Nevertheless, the idea of kind of filling the belt in in, uh, 360 degrees can help you get the idea of bracing effectively. Um, Same on the squat as the bench press. Um, Sorry, same in the squat as the deadlift. And we'll talk about the bench press a little bit. We also take a breath, um, but here usually people aren't taking as deep a breath. Um, There's no worry about spinal stability here. We're really only looking to preserve a shoulder position for the most part. Um, And oftentimes people take in a deep breath so that they can um, have their arch be as high off the bench press as possible. So we reduce the range of motion. So we increase performance from uh, an output perspective. So putting more weight on the bar, which, you know, every powerlifter wants very badly. So um, there is a deep breath and really kind of getting your chest as high off the bench press as, um, as possible.
0: Yeah. And that is the, it's, it is quite different. Uh, The way I was taught on the bench press is that again, when you were looking at sort of more nuanced or advanced techniques, is we're not, we're taking that breath and then we're not breathing at all. Where, you know, with the deadlift and the squat, we have that reset, you know, at the top or at the bottom and again we're trying to keep neutral spine that's you know a big thing like you said there's obviously areas where it's, it doesn't have to be perfect anatomies wise we you know some of us are different some of us are a little rounded depending on you know physiology True. and then can we correct that over time because we're always living life this way not this way right so posterior chain usually almost needs a bit of work like you were saying before with programming hey let's put a bit more lats in or something like that or hamstring work but then the bench press you're like hang on a minute you know and i find people get so caught up with the arch they're like why are you doing the arch i'm like no no the arch is a byproduct of the setup of the bench press you know with the shoulder blades and the feet and everything and again you know we we see some anomalies out there who've got you know unbelievable thoracic mobility um spinal mobility you know gymnasts who've kind of you know found the sweet spot and it's like oh you found a little hack there you know it's like the Fosbury flop back in, in the day over the high bar it's like oh now you've created a new trend you know and then people yeah. are like moving the bar like this much um, but that is kind of transports, right that's sometimes the beauty of it you know you can almost not hack or cheat the system but depending on your physiology perhaps you can find an advantage and usually Within one of the three lifts, you'll find one that you excel in, and, and one that you know is is your Achilles heel, if you will, or one that you need to work on. But that breathing, um, I like to talk about the oxygen. Well, I see a lot of lifters in the gym, and I'd love your recommendation on this, Bryce. If if we are interested in strength or even you know maximizing performance, when we should inhale and exhale. Um, you mm-hmm. talked about belts. Love that. Oh, it's the bane of my existence, my friend, because. <laughs> i see people using belts all the time uh, for you know doing a cable fly i'm like all right well, what, are, what are we doing here man like <laughs> i don't want to go over and hate on people but it's like you know there's a time and a place for that that's probably not it let's try and use the core the tva transverse abdominus whatever it is and use that when we need it um but you know, I I guess let's, before I get ahead of myself, because I often do, let's talk about the breathing first, the inhalation, exhalation across the three lifts. And then let's address, you know, if someone is interested now in maximizing strength, you know, when and how to use a belt properly and what kind of belt, um, and, and why that's important. And you alluded to it before, because like you said, you want to create that even pressure, um, where the old school belts, although they can be valuable. I don't know if they are as valuable in that aspect, but yeah, let's talk about the oxygen and the breathing first and what your recommendation is. Cause I see a lot of athletes exhale sometimes on the lift. I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know what you have found in your experience, um, to be, you know, more quote unquote optimal for strength, but please, um, yeah, unpack that a little bit for us, Bryce. Sure.
1: Um most lifters I see uh do and benefit from breathing at the top on squats if they're doing a multi rep set. Mm-hmm. So there's a one one breath to unrack the bar because you're beginning a brace, so you unrack, you take your two or three steps back and you get in your starting position. Now begins your first breath. You brace, you begin the squat, and you come back up. Um, most people need to breathe every rep on squat, although some people can go two reps without a breath. Um, there's not a whole lot of reason to. Finish a rep, take in another little breath, and then go on with uh, the next rep. Now, on deadlift, we see two styles of breathing. We see what's called a top-down setup and a bottom-up setup. Uh, on a top-down setup, people will um, set their feet, they'll take in a deep breath at the top, And then hold their breath go down grab the bar and then begin the pull Um, probably less common although i don't see any reason why uh i wouldn't recommend that the more common way is called bottom up so people will set their feet set their hands so now their feet are on the floor their hands are on the bar now they'll take in a breath begin that brace and then pull the bar up from there Uh, again You know, I like seeing a breath on every set with a a reset of the hips um, so that we're not just doing touch and go deadlift reps. We're getting a little bit of reset work. Um, This makes the set slightly harder, but it's more competition specific. We get more practice this way. Um, And I think we get into better position because every time we bring the bar back down, we bring it back to a slightly different position. So we want to get back in that perfect starting position before you begin the next rep Uh, on bench press. People can go one to three reps before they need a breath, Um, depending on whatever you're most comfortable with. Somewhere in there. I would at least take a breath every three reps. So if you're doing a six-rep set, that's a breath at the start and a breath halfway through before you finish.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, I appreciate you explaining that so succinctly as well. So I see a lot of people breathing uh, throughout movements, and that can be quite a foreign concept, uh, even for some of the listeners now, if they're not aware of it, where, you know, it's on a big lift and there's a time and a place, uh, but when we're looking at strength and creating again, stability and tension, which you've talked about, it kind of defeats the purpose. People breathe say at the top of the deadlift or they might let the air out, you know, or they're breathing as they go. And it's because, you know, there might be a lot of cues and, and, you know, we've got to kind of unpack that in a segmental way and go, okay, let's focus on this, on this particular set. And then we sort of layer it and add on. because otherwise you give someone 10 million cues and, you know, it's, it's very confusing. Yeah. Um, and, and that again is, is a, yeah, like I said, it's quite foreign, uh, for people to go, oh, but I feel like my head's going to explode. And it's like, well, you know, it might be that initially, but you will condition to it. But ultimately, you know, it's kind of like, um, I use like a balloon analogy. I'm like, if, you know, if you let the air out of the balloon, it loses tension and tightness. So like, we mm-hmm. want to, on this particular lift for safety and performance, you know, bring that in, brace and hold and create tension, um, you know, without obviously popping an artery or vein (laughs) throughout them. And, you know, that can trickle down as well into other movements where it's like, okay, we don't necessarily say on a, on a machine, upright chest press need to have the same tension. But if we do apply a similar principle and, you know, find the point where, okay, where's the best position to breathe? How can I create tension once again? Oh, I got a few more reps out, Alex. Or you know, that was a little bit easier. It's like, yeah, you know, this I do find some of those larger concepts do trickle down a little bit. So I appreciate you um going and addressing each lift. The the belt situation, um, when, how, and what, because I think there is merit. And I don't know whether you agree with this or not. In the early days of learning how to use again the abdominals, abdominal muscles first. This is the way I would usually prescribe it to lifters where it was like, let's train, you know, the basics first. Let's actually learn how to do it, you know, with obviously lighter loads. And then as we start to load that movement with strength, and mobility, and skill we can then add the belt, you know, when we need to, but I think people get too reliant on it. Um, and, and maybe even with like straps, if you want to talk about that as well, um, versus obviously, you know, using chalk. And if if we are talking about power lifters going well, depending on the federation, um, it might not be an event where we can use straps. So, you know, how do we develop that? Um, so maybe just speaking to some of the accessories, um, i.e. Mm-hmm. the belts. Um, the chalk, the grips, uh, and, and even like, I guess, grip strength in general, because this is something that concerns a lot of people uh, in terms of how to continue to build that when it stores.
1: Yeah. you. I'll, I'll talk about the straps and the grip strength and, and stuff like that first because um, it's a little bit easier. So in, in powerlifting competition, straps are not allowed. Um, they're occasionally allowed in strongman competitions, but in powerlifting competition, those no straps Um, it can be occasionally useful on high rep sets to use straps because you don't want your grip to give out before the rest of your body is giving out. And if your grip is the limiting factor, there are two things you can do. One is, well, let's train your grip. That's a good long-term solution so that you don't have to do with this. But in the moment, um, we can use straps to help you get through training volume and get more work done, uh, without having grip be a limiting factor. I find straps can be useful on some uh, upper back accessories too. So you're not so much thinking about what your hand is doing, your forearm activating your bicep. You can be a little bit more passive with your arm and have your lats be a little bit more active. So they can be good almost for um, figuring out which muscles need to work. However, a lot of people come to rely on straps and end up getting in a situation where they want to be able to hold on to their one rep max but are unable to do that. And... We can think of grip in that same vein of specificity that we were talking about earlier. If we wanna get better at gripping uh, a barbell at you know, ones, twos, and threes, probably need to be doing something like that. So you can do heavy holds on deadlift. So your very last rep of your very last set, just hold it at the top for as long as you can. Um, get a bar, put it in a rack at just below lockout and lock it out and hold for, for time. 16 seconds 14 seconds you can kind of just drop the seconds off as you add weight on a week-to-week basis and that's a fairly easy fairly reliable way to work on grip um, you can do one arm hangs if you like um, have a little bit less success with that um i've seen people use the you know the, the hand grippers the king of captain of crush and stuff like that to work on grip um again may increase your grip strength but probably only for handshakes maybe not necessarily for uh for deadlifts <laughs> <laughs> um, but you have a, you have a great handshake. So on the strap side, they're a tool, um, but you have to, to keep your goal in mind and, and uh, make sure you don't become reliant on them. On the belt side of things, uh, I absolutely agree with you. You know, beginner lifters don't need a belt. They should learn how to squat without one. They should learn what bracing feels like without a belt as well. And then even occasionally for intermediate to advanced powerlifters, we get in cycles where we're doing beltless squats. So that we get back to that habit if we've lost it of how do we brace without a belt? Um, so you're able to brace better when you're wearing a belt. Um, research is pretty unequivocal that uh, wearing a belt doesn't reduce ab activation. In fact, it increases ab activation that having to do with the fact that there's an object that you can push out against. So in some ways, your body has a tactile reminder of how hard you're bracing. And so you can tend to contract your abs even harder because um, there's there's an object there that you're pushing against now. As for the type of belts, um, in, in parallel thing, there's traditional leather belts that are four inches thick and anywhere from 10 to 13 millimeters uh, in, in width. Um, that's a great standard, those belts last 10 to 20 years or something like that. So buy one and you're good with it for life. Um, There's also the softer neoprene ones. um, And I've heard just the bare minimum about these breath belts that are becoming popular now. Um, But yeah, I mean uh, a
0: good leather belt will last you a very, very long time. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's those little, I think, elements that you add on and you talked about going back sometimes without the belt uh and it can feel foreign even you know if you get used to say like using knee sleeves um you know things like that all of those accessories i i can probably relate to a lot of lifters who've done that over the years where you kind of go too far one way and you're like i got straps i got the belt all the time got the knee sleeves i recently took the knee sleeves off for a lot of my leg movements and it felt so foreign, It felt like I was naked. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was like on oh, my knees. Um, but you know, just sure enough with, with some correct ups and, and over uh, the weeks, I would say there's been merit, um, to go back and not only from a psychological, but a physiological too. So it, it's great to hear, you know, I think for people listening that, okay, it's not, uh, something that I need necessarily, but it can enhance, you know, my lifts and, and then there's a time and a place for everything. And I think, like you said, with the belts, some of the, the breath belts, there's been a bit of marketing around that for females or, you know, even aesthetics where they go, oh, you know, wear this like corset and it's going to make your midsection thinner. It's like, okay, well, that <laughs> that's not exactly the case there, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we see, we see all this. So it's great to kind of maybe just set some context around that and give some truth to it. So I appreciate it. Bryce, I'd like to talk now. I want to kind of bring it back to you a little bit in terms of, your personal experiences whatever you feel comfortable sharing two elements where i would like to talk about perhaps one of your biggest i guess mistakes or or learnings uh, on or off the platform in life something that really stands out for you as a a bit of an accolade in time where you're like you know what that was at the time maybe it was very challenging but I, i took a lot away from this particular experience this memory versus, you know, a greatest win. Uh, and again, it might not be the obvious, uh, on the platform or, or, you know, the competitive side of things, but something, those two contrasting factors, um, that you've had in your career and, and what you've learned and taken away from those.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess they kind of all stem around the squat. Um, I love the squat because it's so hard. Uh, it's this, it's so different from the deadlift because if you miss a deadlift, uh, you just open your hands and the bar goes to the floor and, and you're good. And on, on bench press, you know, especially if you have, uh, safeties, you're fine there too. Um, and I guess by the same correlate, you're, you're fine on squat, but the fact that it's on top of you just feels so different on squat. You know, the fact that, you know, you're basically getting crushed by this weight that you have to kind of fight back against, And, um, I think one of my biggest wins was a session I was doing in home gym where I was going to go for a PR and, uh, try to lift 700 pounds. And I did 675 and then I did 700. I tried it. I failed it. And, um, I kind of dropped it and, and had a little bit of encouragement from a close friend of mine, you know, Hey, I really think you have that, you know, just, just try it again. Um, and in powerlifting, it's not likely that if you miss something, you're going to make it again, more common in weightlifting than in powerlifting. Uh, cause usually strength is a limiting factor anyway, um, ended up making it. And that was kind of one of the shining achievements for me, um, in, in powerlifting. I mean, I've since squatted. 755, but that 700 felt so otherworldly. Like I never thought that I was going to achieve that level of strength. Mm-hmm. And um, I was almost at disbelief that my body did this thing, you know, just like so proud of my muscles for for <laughs> doing this moment in time. And, um, you know, later on, I, I think it takes a few key misses for you to start building up some doubt in your head that you're capable of you know, certain levels of strength. You, you miss 680, then you miss a 660, and, you know, maybe it's technique and you're working on something or fatigue or whatever. Misses are psychologically damaging. Um, you know, it makes you not want to get back under that weight again, or, or when you do, Feel like you don't have what it takes to to do it, and so for a while it took me quite a while to build back up to the courage to to get back under those types of weights, um, 600 for a while. Even after squatting 700, felt like such a milestone that I would kind of have to like, okay, no one talked to me. I'm gonna turn my music up. I'm gonna shut the world out, and you know I'm gonna go in my little mental cave and see if I can get through this. And I actually worked with a sports psychologist for a little while. Um, almost did some exposure therapy, uh, of not knowing what weight was on the bar for a while. I would literally cover the bar with trash bags. So I didn't know what weight was on the bar. I would have someone else load it. And, um, coming out of that, finally, I was able to just, um, you know, be comfortable with 600 pounds. And and today, thankfully it doesn't feel like, uh, you know, that much of a, a mental excess. And, um, that was really challenging. I walked away with a very big win of kind of understanding more about myself, more about what are the pieces of high performance and how can those pieces be threatened sometimes with a few key misses?
0: Mm, yeah, I remember actually when you had the trash bags on, I was watching a couple of those videos. It's very fascinating. And uh, that probably is their, um, it's an interesting point of view, the psychology, because we get so fixated sometimes on numbers, whether that's powerlifting, whether that's you know in financial areas or business, you know, so I've got to get to this. And we romanticize it in our head and think oh wow you know like we get to this point it's like you know a lot of the time when you're young it might be initially that you know 60 kilos two blues on either side right mm-hmm. And it's like yeah but what if those plates were green and you know what if you put two tens on um or what if you know it was you know and then you, you get a hundred right it's a round number Ooh, three figures um but then there's always more you know you get to this point where you go, well, I've done 200. Now what's next? Well, it's 220, you know, and there's 250, 270, what, or or it's like, well, if I put another red on each side now, what does that become? Um, And we get carried away. And again, that can kind of come back to like leaving like happiness on the horizon because at some point maybe there's a number we can't get to, but again, it's more about the journey than the, the end goal itself for people listening as well. Uh, I just, I'm just doing maths pounds, kilos. I mean, 342 and a half kilos, 755 yep. pounds. Is that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. That's wildly impressive, my friend. Um, <laughs> for, and for, for a lot of people listening, they'll be like, Holy shit, you know, especially as a natural lifter as well. And it's no disrespect to people who are enhanced, but for me, uh, and, and for a lot of people who listen to this podcast, it's just uh, an insignia, of what can be capable, uh, what can be achieved and not necessarily, Hey, this is what you need to do. Cause again, we've talked about specificity. We've talked about individuality. It's about you beating yourself on the platform. And maybe that's, I don't know, some of the work you've done, Bryce, again, working with the, the sports psychologist going, well, you know, why am I putting this maybe added pressure mentally on myself when it's about me, you know, improving on my performance. Um, but I think a lot of people can relate to that that weight coming down. And, you know, like you said, it's, oh man, it's nerve wracking. Cause you're like, I don't know if I'm going to get this weight up sometimes, but that, if you, if you're focusing on that, you know, that's kind of what's going to happen where, like you said, with the deadlift of the bench, it's uh, I guess there's more safety features, or it seems that way because the weight isn't completely on you, um, which, which is massive. I want to ask some like simple questions about that, but also fun because a lot of my audience, they always ask this and I'm interested in it. And this is what what does a day in the life look like Bryce at the moment um give us a bit of an insight to your training whatever you feel comfortable sharing um and then also like even your food you're eating like give us some you know the metrics on that, and and I ask because again, it's not about again people going oh I need to do that, but people are interested in people, and people are interested in what people like you do, and I think it adds a really humanistic quality to kind of go through like a day to day, like a day in the life. Uh, you know they're really popular on YouTube. What what your training looks like? People are like you know how does an elite powerlifter train, and maybe giving that some um, realism because a lot of people go oh like that's kind of not what I thought, but cool maybe i can take some value away from that and apply it to my own training in the respect that oh it doesn't necessarily have to be wildly complex or even when it does there's a time and a place for that so if you could talk us through whatever you feel comfortable sharing bryce i know that would be incredibly valuable for people listening and watching yeah
1: absolutely um so i have been training five days a week for the past four or so years Mm -hmm. um my training sessions because there's more of them they're not as hard so i used to train four days a week very hard and we spread it out a little bit and now things feel a little bit more manageable so i, I like to train in the afternoons 4:30 or something like that start time uh i'm plenty awake i've had a few meals in me uh you know it's not so late that i start feeling uh sleepy and thankfully i'm able to set my own schedule so i choose <laughs> so that's when I train. Um, most things before that are work, you know, since I coach athletes online, I'm in front of a computer fairly often, try to get up and get some steps every once in a while, but I'm filming videos for, for athletes and reviewing their training and making their next training cycles and blocks. And, um, meanwhile, trying to push the business forward. So creating resources for people online and, um, you know, t-shirt designs and, uh, accounting and other boring things as well. Um, on the nutrition side i'm dieting right now so normally and for the last again five six years or something i've been 105 kilo athlete and uh, i'm just now beginning a slow cut down to 93 kilos that um, should take me until february or so to complete uh, if i'm doing it slow and steady um let's see i'm i think i have basically 2500 calories a day 2490 or something like that uh, 190 grams of protein um 275 grams of carbs and remainder fat whatever that's like and um i have uh i have a latte with two percent milk in the morning love my latte and i'm gonna wait as long as possible until i have to give that up it's a nice (laughs) part of the morning (laughs) outside of that um let's see i typically have three big meals a breakfast lunch and a dinner i have an intro workout as well to help me hit my protein goal so um, I have some Gatorade powder and a protein, a uh, scoop of protein in some ice water while I train. And, um, for the most part that covers it. Sometimes I'll eat four times a day instead, uh, just cause that's how the meal sizes work out. Um, but that tends to be the basics and, uh, start work 8. AM and then sometimes have to catch up a little bit at night.
0: Mm. and that like you said is the benefit of of being able to set your own schedule Uh, you find over the years when 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 do i like to train and also when do i perform the best and i think we can all relate there's a bit of a sweet spot and we're all different where it's like i'm not too tired or you know i'm well fed but or, or you know i like to train faster and everyone's kind of got that and i think there's i mean we know that the studies based on that training in the pm were generally stronger but ultimately i think once again, it comes down to a theme that we've talked about in this podcast, which is psychology, right? Um, if you tell yourself you're going to be weaker in the morning, you will. And obviously if you just get rolled straight out of bed and under a squat rack, it's probably not going to be optimal. But over time, if you train, you know, yourself to train in the morning, the body comes conditioned, it comes reliant. I think consistency is always a hidden theme in success. You know, the body's like, Oh, this is, you know, you mentioned predictability before, you know, you want, that's something that's quite um, prevalent in success with, you know, powerlifting. It's like that consistency and and whatnot, but I appreciate you sharing because it's great to get a bit of an insight into you know what your training looks like and what food you're eating um also for for people watching your coach if my memory serves is eric helms is he facilitating uh, a lot of this and you know what what are some of the i guess some of the key things you've learned from eric over the years and and how you know we i talk about this concept of who coaches the coach right so for example you know we might have athletes who, who say, you know, who, who coaches you and what do you learn? And I guess it's a bit hypocritical in a way if we're like, oh, well, no one. And we don't necessarily have to all have a, of a coach. But I think for me, it's it's nice to have, I have, um, you know, multiple people that I look up to who oversee what I do, some of which have been on my podcast. And i I see them as like big brothers You know, like they kind of like they oversee, they keep me in check, they sober me, you know, when I'm second guessing stuff, they're kind of like, hey, man, like, remember, keep it simple. (laughs) And sometimes they're just there to have a conversation with it's not like in the early days where it's like, oh, I, you know, I need to check in with this person every week, and I need to manage all the nutrition Mm -hmm. and programming, the the conversations look a bit different. I'd love for you to kind of talk uh, and speak to that a little bit about your experience with Eric, and how. You know and i know you guys have done a lot of great stuff on this with the podcast and you spoke about it but a little bit of insight into how that relationship has grown and evolved and what you know eric actually has has helped you achieve over that time and still does i guess
1: yeah it's interesting um eric has kind of always been um well for for a while at least his level of uh education experience was just way higher than mine Mm -hmm. um But when we first started, when it came to powerlifting, he wasn't very well experienced either. And so, you know, he was asking uh, some people like how do I program for powerlifting? And, uh, you know, I only kind of knew about this much later, but um, I didn't know that much. So he was kind of always just a little bit ahead of me. And and as he got stronger and smarter, um, so did I. And it's just been um, a really helpful relationship this whole time. Nowadays, my updates are, Uh, every week, just because I'm, I'm dieting. But normally, when I'm not dieting, it's every four weeks, and he writes me a block. And basically, I check in when things are done. And um, the, the role that he serves primarily right now, and it's a really good one, a very valuable one is in fatigue management. You know, so if I, If my overall fatigue steers too far away from baseline, he kind of helps get me back to baseline, you know, adjusting a few training variables, making things easier, making other things harder in such a way that I'm kind of able to stay in a path of um, least likelihood of getting injured and most likelihood of maximizing my performance uh, on a regular basis. So that's been... uh, and really it's taken a lot of time to get to him even knowing like what are the right changes to make, but, uh, that's the benefit of working with someone for a long time is they're able to figure the stuff out about you, uh, if they pay attention to that stuff. So fatigue management is probably the big one. And then walking me off the cliff when I have a really bad training session, uh, <laughs> and I'm able to just kind of message him and him say, it's going to be okay.
0: Yeah, it's, it's invaluable and a lot of merit to that in terms of, you said, you know, working with someone for a long period of time. I feel the longer you work with someone to a degree, you know, with that open, honest approach where it's like, hey, you know, especially if you get someone like yourself, or I mean, I guess Eric has been working with you for that long. So he's walked you through some of those chapters, if you will, of maybe intermediate to more advanced athlete. But even if you get someone who's more advanced right away, you know, people might come to you and say, hey, you know, like expect this. It's like, well, I don't, you might be advanced, but I don't know who you are and all of those nuances, which now are more correlative to success because in the beginner stage, you know, that the, the room for error is so large or the, the hit rate is easier because there's more gains on the table for a lack of better words, where, you know, the beautiful thing about developing that relationship is, you know, you get to know someone's behaviors, their habits, their points of improvement where they need support, even down to the language you use and, you That is it helps you better serve the athlete. So I think there's some hidden gems uh, within what you just said there, Bryce, about, you know, investing in a coach and, you know, staying with them for the long haul where possible, you know, under the right circumstances to be able to really build that relationship. If they have that history with you, um, they are usually better able to serve you. Um, I, I would be at a loss if I didn't ask you this, because I know a lot of listeners are going to, uh, before we get into the rapid fire questions, um, your current personal best on the platform versus, and again, whatever you feel comfortable sharing here, what are some of the next goals? You don't have to necessarily be specific or what are your you know, goals moving forward for Bryce Lewis in, in the future? And that might include personal goals, but also you know, professional with where you want to take the, the coaching element too. You got it.
1: Um, so I recently put up my best total ever. Um I think it's now in the top 10 105 kilo totals of all time. Which is great. Um, drug tested or uh or not. And uh I squatted that 342 we talked about. I benched 227 uh and I deadlifted uh 360. Uh, I only got my second deadlift. Um, we were gonna go for uh a third to win and I ended up making it. We needed some ridiculous jump like 378 or something like that. Anyway, um extremely pleased with that total. Uh I didn't win nationals and and for us in order to get to the world championships, you have to win nationals, so you have to beat everyone else and then you get the nomination to go. Um so I've been thinking about kind of it's a moment of kind of reflection about like, what do I want? What, what do I really want to try to get out of this? What's my next goal? Um, and I've, I've been kind of feeling that while my numbers are going up, you know, I'm not extremely satisfied with the way that I look. I'm feeling a little bit slow, a little bit sluggish. And, and that's part of the reason why I want to drop down to the 93s. Part of the reason is, well, maybe I'll be more competitive if I have, you know, less body fat in my weight class. Mm -hmm. So seeing if I can, you know, maintain as much of my current strength as I can while moving down a weight class. um, There'll be a new batch of people who I'll be competing against. And uh, I still want to kind of stay self-referenced even as I'm competing against other people. So if I could put up a 2,000 pound total as a 93, I'd be really pleased with that as well. So um, kind of eyeing that as a goal now.
0: Yeah. And congratulations on the recent success, Bryce. And it's great to be adaptable in that time. And as I understand, you know, taking that time to maybe stand back, you know, taking some time off, and um, I guess that's a that's a feasible way to do it. Is the weight class thing, right? And there's always (laughs) there is some incredible uh, gifted athletes and anomalies out there, and it's always hard, you know, with with powerlifting. You know, me and my friends and coaches, we always talk about. The powerlifting community and the bodybuilding community, right? And there's correlations, but there's these disparities too. And we, we love the powerlifters because we're like oh, everyone's there. It's supportive. It's a community, and it's really clear cut. You lift it or you don't, <laughs> right? <laughs> where where in bodybuilding, you know, people get very upset, and you know you're up there and you, you're naked and tanned. And for people like me and Eric, we love that. We're freaks. It's weird, I know. And you got like five people judging you, right? And, you know, they could have had a different breakfast or you could look different and they might, you know, sometimes they might judge you differently. So it's so, so um, subjective um, where I think powerlifting is objective, but at the same time, that's sometimes where it can be almost so daunting because you're like, well, you know, I, I either do this or I don't, but exploring (laughs) those options are really powerful um, even within that realm. So Yeah, I'm excited to see what you can produce. And I'm sure, and I'm confident uh, that there'll be a lot more success going forward in the future, my friend. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Before we wrap it up, um, I like to ask some rapid fire questions. They're a bit more fun, lighthearted in nature. Um, Again, uh, people seem to like these. Before we ask the final question, the the first one is if you could choose, this might be obvious, but we'll never know, a superpower, what would it be and why? I was just thinking of super strength, but I mean... (laughs) Flying. Yeah, I would choose flying.
1: Uh, man, how cool would it be? You could get to places so easily. Uh, you get to see the world from an entirely new, uh, vantage point. It just gets to leave the earth. It just, it sounds so cool. I, I would want
0: to fly. Mm, it's incredibly popular the flying element i think it's the most picked and especially in these times as well you know to be able mm. to get that freedom and go i'm just going to pop off to jamaica <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know have one of those lattes or, or maybe even uh you know uh something uh, a little bit more exotic uh like a pina colada i don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> just before you hit the you know before you hit the training in the 430 session just the, just a little bit um yeah. right uh the the second question uh i would ask is you know it's more nutrition related what would be your favorite food or if you had to choose say a last meal setup what would that look like and you can include you know like entree drink food but what's your kind of go-to like if bryce is like man this is my favorite meal what are you eating all right i'm going with some really high quality sushi i think uh it's so hard to beat
1: it just it hits all these notes uh you know, it's salty, it's umami, it's fresh. It's just, uh, you know, it can be a little spicy, a little crunchy, depending on what you order. Um, so good. I'd go with sushi. Mm,
0: mm. I like the way you described that hitting all the notes. <laughs> there's definitely a lot of variety. That's what, but like the keyword is that high quality. Cause yeah, I know mm-hmm. it's like, there's like a black belt, there's a black belt and there's sushi and then there's sushi. Right. So, uh, that's a, that's a good one. My last uh, rapid fire question would be if you could invite anyone to dinner, dead or alive, um, and you can choose up to three people off the top of your head at this moment in time, who would you invite to to have some sushi with?
1: All right. Um, So there's this um, philosopher neuroscientist who has a podcast. His name is Sam Harris. Oh Nelson, um, yes. <laughs> yeah i'd get i'd get sam he'd have a seat at my table there's a, a musician named porter robinson mm-hmm. um really interesting guy i'm actually going to his uh, music festival in about a month or so out in california uh who else maybe einstein or something like that just because like we hear all these quotes about about him but you know part of me thinks like, did he really ever say those things? And are they just taken out of context? And he seems very well-read besides just the physics, someone that would be really cool to just have a conversation with.
0: Mm. Yeah. That's quite an eclectic mix and, and very thought provoking too. Cause like you said, a lot of his quotes are misconstrued, which, which actually brings me to ask another side note notice the tattoos right here. Yeah. I want to, I want to ask what they represent to you. Cause some of them actually remind me of that. Like, you know, you've got like this, it's almost like the mad scientist, some of those things. Um, yeah. is that your passion with psychology and neuroscience? Is that what that relates to?
1: Yeah. Um, there's 10 of these little symbols and they're all just kind of like perspectives that I try to keep on the world. So they're just little symbols that um, are reminiscent of a perspective that I try to keep on the world, a way to understand situations that uh, I go through at any point in time. Um, there's, you know, neuroscience and and this is just like a galaxy, just like an idea that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, our problems kind of boil away if we just think that we are part of the vastness of, uh, you know, a galaxy and, and how insignificant we are, but also how special we are at the same point. And so this one here is psychology, and this one is uh, it's an atom um, for the fact that uh, we're just made of uh, molecules. And uh, this is an evolutionary perspective and, and so on. So this side is a little bit uh, less sciency, but they're all just kind of uh, ways for me to remind myself about how I like to view situations.
0: Yeah, I like that. And and for people who are just listening as well, uh, you can jump over to the YouTube and you can have a little look um, if you want to reference what we're talking about. But they're quite cool. And I always like to ask people about their tattoos because not always, because it is art. And again, it's subjective to the individual, but they usually tell a story or they act as reminders for ourselves. I think oftentimes, sometimes when we write quotes, we write them for ourselves, too. In some, in some retrospect, it's like a reminder. And again, having that there every day, it's like that symbolic, like it's just part of the armor. It's part of what I embody. And it's just a quaint little, you know, every now and again to go, hmm, perspective is everything. And um, yeah, it's definitely cool. I appreciate you sharing, Bryce. With the last question, I ask all my guests, some of which we've like touched on, but what I want to do is really get granular. Can you identify... A fear in your life um, what it was perhaps if you're still working through it what it is uh, and how you're overcoming or how you overcame that and what you've taken away from that experience I know you talked to us before about some of that on the platform but uh, that might be that same that same attribute or there might be something else but whatever you feel comfortable sharing we'd love to to know what that fear is or has been and as we see uh, is that a black cat in the background there beautiful it is (laughs) (laughs) coming over. He's yeah, like, what's dude. going
1: on here? I better make sure she doesn't get on the keyboard. Um, like a black Panther. Beautiful. You know, it's funny. I've, I've been doing some journaling. Oh, there Oop, she is. There she is. <laughs> wow. All right. <laughs> That's so good. I've been what's doing name? Some, <laughs> this is Maki. Um, she's a little kitten actually. All right. Um, yeah. I have been doing some journaling and today's journal uh, that I didn't get a chance to finish yet was what are your biggest fears? So extremely relevant as I was talking about it. Um, But uh, I think the most poignant one for this is that I have this fear that once I stop gaining strength as a lifter, that I won't become, uh, that I won't be relevant anymore. And that when I'm no longer relevant, uh, my business will crumble, uh, people will forget about me and uh, I'll kind of lose a lot of the connections that I've made along the way that ultimately, people like me for my strength and that those pieces will kind of fade away and there will be nothing left and you know i know some of it is unfounded i've made some real connections and you know businesses don't just evaporate like that um but it still kind of sticks with me sometimes and i don't really have a lot of uh, uh a solution just yet but you know it's
0: it's good to be vulnerable sometimes so wanted to share that No, I appreciate it as well, and it's so good to even verbalize and write that down. It's very powerful. Uh, We can often harness that as well into positivity. And and look, like you said, a lot of that is probably unfounded. And even you know, getting that out in the open, we can rationalize it a little bit and go, well, hang on, is that like that? We are our own worst critics, right? Mm -hmm. So we come up with these verbiages and these dialogues that often they don't exist, or there's there's maybe an element of it. Um, but, but, you know, from what I can ascertain and many other people we've never met, but you strike me as someone who's incredibly authentic, genuine down to earth. And, you know, even I think the way you conduct yourself, you know, on the platform with your athletes, what you've done, um, I very much doubt people will forget the accolades, uh, that you've, you know, achieved, but I think moreover than the accolades, it's actually the experience. And I talk about this a lot, where there's this maxim that goes people will forget what you did for them you know they'll forget you know sometimes who you are and even what your name is but they'll never forget how you made them feel and this is the most powerful thing in my opinion about being a coach because you will you get to create these great experiences for people which given the opportunity stands the test of time and that that's that's really powerful stuff and that's the stuff that gives me goose pimples and i think um, something that I've noticed that we all have in common as as coaches who are really passionate about what we do is that's why we do it. Like we we don't do it for us. We do it for them. We do it for other people. We want to give back. We want to pay it forward. And I think if you keep doing that, my friend, um, yeah, you, you will definitely remain in the memory of of many. I appreciate you. Hundred percent, brother. Hundred percent. And I think uh, you know it's a great way to round out what's been you know, a very thought-provoking podcast. We've covered a lot of areas. There's a lot of nuances. And again, there's so much to unpack, I think, to kind of highlight something as well. You know, we could talk about each of those given sub- subjects in great depth, and it is a little bit unfair to kind of just, you know, go, okay, well, that that's it. You know, there is a lot more. There's a lot of context, with which we've talked about in individuality. Um, and I'd like to say, you know, if people do want to reach out, to you uh or follow along for more you know first of all where are the best places to do that bryce i'll include those um and then any lasting thoughts that you you might have or you want to leave the listeners with and, and watches before we sign off you got it um
1: i love hearing from people I love helping people through whatever they're going with. Um, You can find me on Instagram at Bryce underscore TSA. Um, My inbox is always open, Bryce at thestrengthathlete.com. And our coaching stuff is at Bryce, sorry, at thestrengthathlete.com also. Um, And yeah, I mean, if there's anything, just uh, enjoy the journey and uh, try not to take your strength gain for granted. Uh, Really celebrate it when you go through this stuff because, you know, special time in your life. And it's, it's really an amazing thing to do something you've didn't, never done before. So, you know, make sure you recognize that fact about yourself and, and
0: uh yeah, enjoy it. Beautiful words to sign off with my friend. Thank you very much. And thank you for your time again. I, think, I appreciate you being so generous with it. My pleasure. Awesome. Awesome, Bryce. I look for everyone listening and watching. Thank you guys for tuning in we appreciate you you know if you guys are not here then you know we don't have an audience but ultimately at the end of the day if you did enjoy this you know pay it forward share it with a friend tag someone in and if you can and it's safe to do so as ever guys i'll ask leave a rating and a review uh, so more people can listen and enjoy this and of course until the next episode stay fearless For those of you who are confused, frustrated, and sick and tired of not seeing the results that you want or deserve, make sure that you click the apply for coaching button in the description below and line up a completely free consultation with myself where we can discover if it's a good fit as a client and coach and take your health and physique to the next level once and for all.